ever wondered why African contributions to philosophy, science and technology do not rank alongside other more recent civilizations? Well, I think it is because we do not know enough. Some brilliant archaeologists and historians have been busy and know much more. Welcome to the Ancient Roots Podcast, dedicated to conversations with these archaeologists and historians to discover and to wonder the how the ways of the ancients could help our modern ways. So from what you found, with the Kafu and the Funga, would you say that there are conditions that predispose them to happen, to, to come to, to live in certain parts of the continent or at certain times in the phase of the continent developing and shaping? I, I think across Africa, of course, you know, Africa is so huge. You know, when you, when you look at it and you understand that you can fit, you know, the United States and China and India and Europe pretty much all into Africa one way or the other. There are all sorts of different illustrations you can see yes. of just the size of the African landmass. So, the, 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 of course, there's always a difficulty of talking about Africa as singular or even sub-Saharan Africa as singular for that matter. Yes. There's such diversity linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, but also diversity in terms of political tradition. So, for example, I was talking about Mande Africa. So these are people who speak Mande languages, which are part of the Niger-Congo language phylum. And the, the Bantu languages are also part of the Niger-Congo language phylum. Yeah. And of course, you also have the Afro-Asiatic languages with, for example, Hausa speakers, amongst others. And you have Nilo-Saharan languages with the Songhai speakers, amongst others. And so within all of these, and to some extent bounded and shaped by language, because language, of course, affects the way we think about things or reflects the decisions our ancestors have made uh, about uh, political organization and other things. I mean, they gave us words to use to describe these things. And so when you look across Africa, what you find is there are many different political traditions. I mean, for example, the political tradition of Congo or the political tradition of Mande peoples or the political tradition of Yoruba peoples or Igbo peoples or what have you. And you'll find that there are, there are shared attributes, but there are also unique attributes in each of these systems. And there are things to learn from all of them. It's really exceedingly complex. So, you know, if we go back and all of these different traditions were forming in the first millennium BC, the first millennium AD, and then people are moving. Because if we go back in time, one thing which moves, tends to move people around the continent is changing geography and changing weather systems. And uh, for this, you need to think about the Sahara. Yes. Because the Sahara, of course, now is arid and expanding. But if we go back to between, say, 12,000 and 4,000 years ago, 
the Sahara was covered with grasslands and rivers and lakes, and there were many people living there. If we go back before 12,000 years ago, the, it was a desert again, and so yeah. on. You can keep going back. So the Sahara is like, uh, in a sense, this motor <laughs> that draws people in when it's green and then expels them when it's arid. Yes. And this has tended to move people uh, around the continent. Mm. And a, a good deal of, say, for example, especially uh, Niger-Congo and Nilo-Saharan speakers, when the Sahara was green, they were living in the Sahara. And then, of course, as the Sahara became more arid, it forced everybody south at different rates. So where people settled ultimately had to do with the first people to move out of the Sahara and, and also the changes which were taking place. Because if we look at the beginnings of agriculture in Africa, so cattle pastoralism, but also the domestication of crops like millet or sorghum, this big transformation, particularly regarding cereal crops, this happened as the Sahara was emptying out. People were under stress. So at one point, if you imagine this, the, the Sahara is larger than the continental United States. So it's a big area. Yes. So you have people living in there and suddenly it less and less rainfall and people then begin to be pushed to the edges of the Sahara. They yeah. have less land. Before that, they didn't need to cultivate anything because they had wild grass all over the place that they could harvest, yes. but much more than the populations were. But then you get to a point where people are being compressed into smaller areas, and so they have to intensify things, and they intensify their agricultural production. They improve seeds. They make it so things have bigger seed heads, so more nutrition for the populace and so on. And so... Once people develop agriculture or once, uh, you know, they become pastoral and they have cattle or sheep or goats or what have you, that puts them in a position to colonize new areas, to push farther south. Mm. And, and so, you know, there are then restrictions because of things like tsetse or other waterborne diseases that hold populations in certain areas. And then there's a gradual deforestation and people move following that deforestation in, in much the same way as, you know, the colonization of Europe happened and the destruction of woodlands in the Neolithic and all of that. Mm. This, is, this is happening in Africa also. And, and so, so where people, you know, everyone, I suppose, you know, it's to say that there is no particular place, although it's attractive to think so, which is primordial to a certain people. People have always slowly moved as the environment has moved or as the ecology has moved. And so that has helped to, you know, distribute people across vast landscapes. Yeah, it's fascinating. I have for a while wondered the link between the Kenyans and the people, uh, the Igbo. The reason being, their names I see, like my daughter's name, which I've seen the same name, different meaning, in Kenya, and the number of other names that starts with C-H-I, 
which has a, a different meaning. And I've always wondered, could there be a link? And recently I came across a historical article that was suggesting that it was people who moved from the area around Ethiopia and Kenya who moved into the West African area and settled on the edges. What you've just said now about the Sahara could explain how they moved into the Sahara. The Sahara expelled them and they moved down towards the coast of West Africa. That makes sense to me and is fascinating. There's, yeah. you know, and, and there's, there's movement, of course, at all sorts of different timescales and directions. So, for example, also when the pastoral systems, which are oftentimes linked, say, with the Fulani or Pul peoples, the Pul themselves, the, the linguistic heartland of the Pul or the Fulani, is, uh, is a Western Atlantic language. So that is to say, you know, uh, on, the, on, the, on the west coast of Africa, around Senegal and south of Senegal. And then, of course, Fulani culture, Fulani ideology and so forth, then moves to the east at some point. So, you know, you have all of these Fulani pastoral peoples in Nigeria, you have them in Mali, uh, you know, almost right up to Sudan. Yes. And this is something which has happened, this movement, you know, in the in the past 2,000 years, relatively recently. Yes. So there's movement at all sorts of different time depths and all sorts of different directions. Mm. And in this case, it's because you have a relatively similar environment in the Sahel across, mm. and you can have a, a sort of culture of pastoralism move west to east or east to west. There's a lot of interaction, but especially since pastoral peoples are doing transhumance, you know, so they're moving every year hundreds of miles with their herds, which brings them in contact with other people. And so cultures can, can you know, change and spread uh, with those sorts of movements. Yeah. And with the Sahel, like you're saying, because the Sahel is sparsely, uh, more sparsely vegetated, the movement of cattle, large movement of cattle is easier. So that move and that whole area, it's easier for people to move long distances. Oh, yes. And one other thing just to say, also, for example, you know, we tend to think, well, fisher folk are more sedentary. But in reality, if you look at historical studies of fishing subsistence in Africa, particularly fisher folk along the great rivers like the Niger, they also displace over the course of the year in their boats you know, well over 100 miles sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, so there are all sorts of opportunities for people you know, to encounter one another. We forget just that in a sense, the rivers of Africa were like highways. Yes. And then the coast as well, the, 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 the Atlantic on the coast as well, there must have been movement along it as well. Yes. I mean, in, in, in certain areas with, you know, the right sort of boats, there was certainly, there was certainly movement. But in, in terms of commerce, if you look, you know, at the, the, the great states of Africa were situated along the great rivers, like the Niger and the Nile and so forth. So to carry out commerce, you know, you can go today and uh, in the middle Niger, you can still see 
enormous pirogues, absolutely laden and filled with pottery, moving up and down. And it's so much easier to move heavy loads in that way. Uh, I, I remember I, I spent um, a fair amount of time working in the uh, ancient city of Dia in Mali. And there was a group of potters there who made water pots, so jidaga. So these are water pots, which are wonderful because they're big, they're decorated, they cool the water because they transpire. Yeah. And they're very popular, these water pots from Dia. And so people all across the country will order specific water pots from these women and uh, even ask to have their names painted on them or what have you. And mm-hmm. I used to think, you know, how do they do this? And at least I mean, I, you know, I'm talking about uh, before the, the recent troubles. I, I hope this is still going on. But they would all take place by the river. The, the pots would move hundreds of miles sometimes to get to their destination. Fascinating. Thank you. We could, I could talk about this all day, but I'm very conscious of, of our time. And just to end up, if there's one thing you think we should bear in mind, even thinking of governance and moving governance forward, is there one thing that you think we should bear in mind? You've given us so much rich, to, rich bits to think about. Is there one thing? Well, it's difficult to say one thing, but I'm reminded of, of, of uh, something I heard from a griot in Segu. And there are all sorts of different ways of unpacking numbers in the Manday world, and griots use this to spin their tails. But there was uh, an explanation, because Segu is known as the, the city of Balanza, uh, so that is to say modern Segu, uh, which Balanza is a tree. But there are all sorts of numbers associated with it. And, um, and so there was one narrative in which was this was being unpacked, and there was an extra number one. He was talking about the governance of Segu and the good times. And there was, it, he was unpacking all of this, and I say, well, I'm thinking to myself, because, you know, he's, he's dealing with a number up in the thousands, and he's saying 300 is this and 400 is this. And, and he had this one left over, and I said, what will be the, the one? And he's, he, at the end, he wraps it up and he says, the one is the secret council of the people. So in other words, this is the idea that a ruler will listen to just one member of the people and hear their opinion and hear their troubles and use that to shape how they should behave, how they should act. And that's something which has always stuck with me. It's, it's, it's the notion that, you know, it's listening and listening to, you know, not necessarily the powerful, but listening to just a regular person and their needs and their perspectives and acting on that. And so it's, it's about flattening hierarchies and it's about greater consensus and greater responsibility of leadership to the people. Yes, and with that also comes the responsibility, therefore, for the people to be willing to speak so that the leader would listen. Yes. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you um, for, for, for what you've dropped for us to ponder. And I look forward to another conversation. Thank you. So do I. Uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you.